and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 186, The Battle for Norway, Quisling, and the North Sea. Last time, as touching our coverage of the war at sea, the Germans prepared to invade Norway. However, the British Royal Navy assumed that the oncoming German vessels were attempting to break out of the North Sea to head for the Atlantic. This very confused situation was made all the worse for the British by a violent storm. But when Lieutenant Commander Roop's destroyer, Glowworm, made contact with a relatively large German service fleet and reported it back to the Admiralty just before its destruction, the British had to factor in the very real possibility that Norway was being threatened. However, Admiral Forbes, commander of the British home fleet, still assumed a German breakout was being attempted. Thus, he sent the Repulse, a cruiser, and four destroyers to help contain the German vessels. What's more, the battlecruiser Renown was heading south for that same purpose. But then, the Admiralty jumped in and ordered the Renown to turn and make for a new minefield which had been set up just off southern Norway, near Oslo. Then, a coastal command flying boat, defying the high winds, reported in that a German battlecruiser and two cruisers were heading west. This seemed to lock down the strong possibility that the Germans were heading for the Atlantic. But the truth was, the German vessels, the Admiral Hipper, and the destroyers were just sailing around in circles, waiting for dawn, to then turn east and make for the Norwegian coast. Yet Forbes, in weighing the two possibilities, a breakout or an attack on Norway, could not ignore the slightest chance that German vessels were heading to the Atlantic to sink British merchant shipping. So, had his force turned to the north by northwest. Thus, the British vessels missed the Germans as they soon turned east. The situation was not helped with the interference of the Admiralty, Admiral Pound, and Churchill. Forbes was given conflicting orders, but in the end knew he had better not let the Germans get to the north of his forces. This confusion could have been helped tremendously had other planes been able to lift off, but such was the storm on that April 8th that it was impossible. To the south of the German and British vessels thus mentioned, the Polish submarine Orzel spotted a German transport ship, the Rio de Janeiro, just off Norway's southern coast. It, too, was getting into position, waiting for dawn. The Orzel started patrolling when Germany invaded Poland and had spent some time in port in Estonia. The sub's commander, Gruzinski, couldn't believe his eyes, but soon sent a warning shot across the transport's bow, as it had her dead to rights. Yet the steamer continued on, hoping the storm would allow it to escape. The sub put a torpedo into the German vessel. Soon after, a Norwegian destroyer and a few fishing trawlers arrived to pick up the survivors. The Norwegian sailors were shocked when they brought on board German soldiers in full uniform. As the young German men only knew what they were told, they fully confessed that they were, in fact, on their way to the Norwegian port city of Bergen to save it from a British invasion. However, and this defies logic, 
When the Norwegian officers reported this event to their superiors, the brass on shore did not contact Coastal Command. Certainly, the question of a general mobilization was not even considered. Perhaps the Norwegians believed that the threat had been neutralized, and thus there was no need. But surely, if there were Germans here coming at Bergen, then there must be others heading for other locations. Still, the situation was not considered further. As for the British, who were also not informed, they continued on their way to the northwest. As for the first sea lord, Churchill, he knew of the possibility that the home island could be strangled by a blockade, so decided on a drastic measure. Taking the men off of the ships still in port, designated for R4, the occupation of Norway and Sweden, the four cruisers then rushed out to join Admiral Forbes. However, the disembarkation had been done in such haste, the men were told to leave their equipment on board. Events would show that what Winston had just done would negate Britain's ability to quickly challenge a German presence on Norwegian soil. A few hours later, at 3.30 a.m. on April 9th, the Renown spotted two German ships. Admiral Whitworth and Commander Robin Curie believed they had spotted the Shornhurst and the Admiral Hipper. In truth, they were half right, as the Shornhurst and Gneisen now were nearby. The two larger German vessels had previously delivered their ten destroyers near the Norwegian southern coast, who were carrying troops, and then had turned west. But again, dealing with the high winds and resulting choppy waters, Admiral Lutjens, the German in command, had reduced his speed to 12 knots. And as yet, the Germans had not spotted the British vessels. Taking advantage of this, Renown started firing 15-inch shells at the Gneisenau. Lutjens, though he still hadn't spotted the enemy, knew he had been made, so ordered an increase in speed. The Renown matched the German speed, which allowed the Gneisenau to begin her own attack, though still some 18,000 yards away. On the ships went, heading west on a parallel course, all the while trying to direct their shots against the winds and rolling waves. Such was the gunner's skill of the Renown that, within ten minutes, three hits had been scored on the Gneisenau. That's when Luchens remembered his true goal. Yes, with his nine 11-inch guns, he could have given as good as he got. But his goal was to lead the British away from Norway. And that's what he proceeded to do, as he ordered the guns to stop and the speed to be increased to 29 knots. The British, with their blood up, took the bait and attempted to keep up with the German vessels. In time, though, Luchens lost the renown and her destroyer escort. Germany's invasion of Norway started during the pre-dawn hours of April 9th. Commodore Friedrich Bonta, on board the destroyer Wilhelm Heidkamp, entered the unguarded 100-mile passage that led to Narvik. Behind him were nine more destroyers. As the Norwegians were not expecting trouble, certainly not something of this magnitude, the navigation lights were still lit. This helped the Germans enter the harbor at 5.15 a.m., right on schedule. Yet soon the aged guardship Eidsvold, 
approached and boldly put a shot across the Commodore's flagship. The Germans stopped, and Bonta sent a man to the Eiswald, asking for permission to enter. Yet the messenger was also told, if he did not receive an answer in the positive, as soon as he left the Norwegian vessel, to shoot off a red very pistol. The answer was not positive. The red flare was soon heading towards the heavens. That's when Bonta, who had already trained his torpedoes on the guardship, let loose two fish. The Eiswald leapt into the air with a double explosion, but its sister ship, the Norga, returned fire. The other German destroyers replied in kind, and soon the second Norwegian vessel was out of action. Any resistance offered now would have to come from the forces commanded by Colonel Sudlow, yet he was with Vikund Quinsling, hence did nothing as Germans disembarked from the various destroyers. One by one, the other port cities fell. As the Admiral Hipper and her four destroyers came at Trotheim, about halfway down Norway's west coast, the Germans flashed Morse code in English. This confused the defenders enough to allow entry. Eventually, the guns furthest from the Germans figured out the ruse and opened fire. Yet they were silenced within minutes. The other guns were taken by German soldiers who had disembarked and approached the large guns from behind. Right away, German gunners manned the Norwegian guns, thinking the British would be along at any moment. They were giving their adversary too much credit. Further south of Trotheim at Bergen, the gunnery training ship Berms and the light cruiser Konigsberg approached. The land-based guns opened up and scored several hits, but not enough to stop the invaders. The German vessels offered up their own fire while German troops were unloaded to approach the engaged defending guns from behind. Bergen fell relatively quickly. However, that was not the case at Christiansand along the southern coast. Fog had rolled in, delaying the attackers. As such, the element of surprise was lost. This allowed the coastal defenders to lay smoke and organize their own artillery attack. The German vessels returned to the sea and informed their superiors. Gehring made good his promise to assist, and soon the coastal guns were being hit by dive bombers. The German ships returned, free of resistance. In other areas, paratroops owned complete surprise and were able to complete their objectives, whether it was a communication station or an airfield, such as the one at Stravanger. Alas, things would not go as smoothly in Germany's attempt to take the capital Oslo, and the reason why is the epitome of irony. The Oslo Fjord, the 100-kilometer or 62-mile waterway that leads to the capital, had been used many times throughout recent history to attack the city. But during the late 1800s, the Norwegian government decided to spend lavishly and buy only the best guns available, namely guns from the German arms manufacturing family Krupp of Essen. Thus, 28 kilometers or 17 miles south of Oslo, on the small island called Haova, was situated the Oskarberg Fortress, and on it 
were three Crump 11-inch guns. They were called Moses, Aaron, and Hosva. On either side, on shore, were additional Krupp 8-inch guns. Again, all these artillery pieces were 40 years old, but in perfect condition. They were made from the finest Krupp Stahl, after all. The Germans knew of the guns, but what they did not know of was the underwater torpedo battery. Very few people did. It had three torpedo tubes, could fire six torpedoes without reloading, and had nine torpedoes in total. As the German vessels, the heavy cruiser Blücher and the battlecruiser Lutzo, along with accompanying ships, came up the fjord, the fortress's commander, the 64-year-old Oberst, or Colonel, Ericsson, was not at his station, as he had been ill since March. So in his place was the retired commander's senior grade, Andreas Anderson, who happened to live nearby, at Drobach. Anderson, before this, had been retired for 13 years, but the Oskarberg Fortress had been his last posting, so he knew its defenses intimately. Word reached Anderson that late on April 8th, an unknown group of vessels was coming up the waterway. The retiree put on his uniform and was taken by boat to the fortress. Obersk Eriksson, acknowledging the other's superior knowledge of the fortress, stationed himself at another battery on the eastern shore. The unknown vessels continued coming north up the waterway, ever closer to the fortress, which dominated that part of the waterway as its location here was only 500 yards wide. Ericsson seems to have not even considered the possibility of defective communications on the ships, the chances being too remote. So at 4.21 a.m. local time on April 9th, he ordered Moses, Aaron, and Josepha to fire on the ships. The officer responsible for the guns questioned his orders. Ericsson replied, Either I will be decorated or I will be court-martialed. Fire! By this time, the ships were at point-blank range. Moses and Aaron fired off two rounds each of 255 kilograms or 562-pound high-explosive shells from 1,800 meters or 2,000 yards away. There weren't enough men there to man the third gun. Some argue later that Ericsson violated Norwegian rules as he did not fire off a warning shot. The colonel responded that the German vessels had already received their warning shots when they had engaged with other coastal batteries earlier on. During this, a defending patrol boat, the Pole 3, had rammed a German torpedo boat just before it was sunk. The Lutzo was hit three times by the main guns, but it was the Blücher that suffered the most. The first shell aimed at it, landed in front of the aft mast. The area quickly became engulfed in flames. The second shell hit at the base of the forward gun turret, which caused those guns to slide into the water. A second fire soon appeared. This spelled the end of the Blucher, as the first shell had ignited oil cans and incendiary bombs aboard. The second shell had taken out the ship's electricity. Thus, it was unable to return fire. The Blucher turned over and sank 
at 6.30 a.m. More than 1,000 men and officers were lost. The Luto and its accompanying ships turned around, but they were still fired on as they left by their fortress's magnificent Krupp guns. Once the Germans were out of range, they disembarked their infantry, who would then have to fight their way towards the capital. And once again, Goering made good his promises. While the German troops fought their way north, the Luftwaffe bombed the capital, the island fortress, and then transported airborne troops, who would take the weakened Oslo, along with troops who were landed at Fornbu airfield later that day. The Oskarberg fortress would be bombed for nine hours, with some 500 bombs dropped on it. Ericsson surrendered the fort on the morning of the next day, April 10th. The defiance of the Oskarberg fortress held up the German timetable enough to allow King Hakon VII and most of the Norwegian government to depart by train to Hamar, to the north. The Germans insisted that the king and the government make Quinsling the new prime minister, but neither the king nor his inspired officials would do such a thing. The Luftwaffe chased the king and his officials, bombing towns where they held up as they made their way to a British ship, the HMS cruiser Glasgow. Quisling was made the new Norwegian leader by German arms. As for Denmark, that was occupied without resistance. Going back a bit on the morning of April 9th, news was coming into the Admiralty of the German invasion of Norway. It responded by sending out the battleship Warspite and the carrier Furious, However, the latter left in such a hurry, it had no fighters on board, thus making it a floating piece of steel, unable to inflict damage. Forbes, the home fleet commander, who was about 90 miles from Bergen, ordered four cruisers and seven destroyers to make for the port city to attack any German troops or vessels there. Yet the Admiralty again stepped in and belayed the order, which was fortunate for the light cruisers Kolm and the damaged Konigsberg, and the artillery training ship Brems, currently at Bergen. By the afternoon of April 9th, the day of the invasion, the storm subsided. It wasn't perfect, but clear enough for German bombers to range over the North Sea. Thus the warships of the home fleet felt the full effect of Goering's Luftwaffe, as some 90 planes hounded the British vessels. The destroyer Gurkha, along with other destroyers, had been on their way to Bergen when they were set upon by 47 German Ju-88 and 41 HE-111 bombers. But then the Gurkha moved away from the other ships to get a better firing position, but now that it was away from the collective security, the German planes focused on it. One bomb was enough to send it beneath the waves. Two other nearby cruisers were damaged. The Nelson-class battleship Rodney was hit by a bomb, which, fortunately, did not explode. However, its deck was now splintered. Forbes gave up on trying to control the sea with ships that did not have fighter cover. Again, the carrier Furious was sent out in such haste and without fighters. The ships of the home fleet were pulled away from Norway out of the Luftwaffe's range. 
What German vessels, warships, and transport ships were still around Norway waited until darkness to make an attempt to get home. The Köln and Admiral Hipper made its return, but not the light cruiser Karlsruhe. She was attacked by the sub Truant, just south of Christiansand. Hours later, the Karlsruhe had to be scuttled. Another British sub, Spearfish, damaged the Lutzo, already damaged from its exchange with the Norwegian fortress, but managed to arrive home safely. It would be under repairs for a year. Other British subs enjoyed good hunting during this time. The Trident sank four ships, either supply vessels or transports. The Triad, Sea Lion, and Snapper also sank a supply ship each. Two transports sank by the Triton were carrying 900 men in total. As for the German subs, they sank nothing. There had been plenty of opportunities, but each and every time, their torpedoes either exploded prematurely or not at all. As for the Konigsberg, her luck was about to run out. The RAF went after her with 24 bombers on the evening of April 9th, but did not land a single bomb. The next morning, 16 Skua dive bombers from the air fleet arm had a go. Their fuel tanks were full to overflowing. They each carried a 500-pound bomb. Their takeoffs nearly weren't successful due to all the weight. However, just after dawn, they found the light cruiser and dove down, scoring several hits. The ship exploded and then sank. All but one of the dive bombers made it back home. Yet, despite these limited successes, Norway would be occupied by the Germans. True, much of the Kriegsmarine was now at the bottom of the North Sea, or damaged, but nothing more than Reeder had expected. And, looking at the larger picture, the vital Swedish ore supply was now, once again, safe. The modest sea passage across the Baltic was under German control, and, most importantly, Nazi Germany now had another set of ports and air bases with which to narrow the British maritime lifeline. It had been a close thing, but German boldness had won out. As for Hitler's next target, France, what could the British Royal Navy do but look on? Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.